often tell people nobody owns fermentation and nobody can own fermentation. It's truly democratic. I mean, it's a force of nature, like cooking with fire. If you think about fermentation, it's always moving and active and changing. It asks us to engage in the world in that way. So I think thinking of our fermented lives as being very much something that asks us to intentionally create that life. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Good Dirt Podcast, and welcome to August such a rich, beautiful time of year here at the farm and in the garden. Hope that wherever you are, you're immersing yourself in the joys of this beautiful season. And that reminds me of one of our voicemails we just got. Should we share it? Yes, let's do it. Hi there. My name is Ellie. I am calling from South East Wisconsin, and it is a beautiful, breezy July day here. I'm sitting with my knitting and five new chickens and sitting in the garden and just enjoying the sound of the wind and the wind chimes and, of course, the Good Dirt podcast. And I just wanted to call and say thank you. I recently found the podcast, and it has comforted me. At the end of long days, raising two little ones at home, and it's what I look forward to at the end of my days. I come out and sit with my chickens, and I have my knitting, and I have been catching up on all of your podcasts. So I just wanted to say thank you for all of your inspiring work and the cheerfulness and color that you're bringing to this community. And personally for me, hearing both talk is really inspiring because it really speaks to something in me about my relationship and connection with my two young daughters. And knowing that you both as a mother and daughter team share so much throughout your life and clearly your passions and your relationship has grown is really inspiring. And it makes me think a lot of my future relationship and what I would like to there with my daughters. So thank you for that. So thank you again for the beautiful podcast and my ears are ready to listen to all the episodes I can. So thank you and lots of abundance to you both this summer. Bye-bye. Oh, thank you so much, Ellie. That really means so much to us. We really just 
love the affirmation and the encouragement and love to know that you guys are out there listening and enjoying what we're doing. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, it's such an honor to be something that or to be a part of something that you would look forward to at the end of your day and that you would get value from. So thank you for sharing that with us. So feel free to call in anyone, all you Good Dirt listeners. The number is 443-459-1950. Ask us a question. Tell us about your favorite episode. Just say hey and tell us where you're calling in from. Any of that, we just love to hear from y'all. And we think it's really important to just share the community with the community. So thank you all. Yeah, I love it. Mom, what's the garden update? Well, here we are midsummer. This is the time of year when you kind of shift from planting and weeding and spending all that time in the garden where you're harvesting and bringing things into the kitchen and getting things processed and preserved. So lately I've harvested elderberries and aronia berries, and there are lots and lots of tomatoes from the CSA already. I brought him a whole box the other day. We're talking about tomatoes in the almanac. So we share some of our favorite ways to enjoy tomatoes. Tomatoes are just the epitome of summer, are they not? They are. And today I made a big batch of fermented salsa, which was one of my favorite things to do with the tomatoes. I am not one to do a lot of canning. I much prefer fermenting. And salsa is easy and delicious. And the only problem with it is it hardly ever makes it to the winter months. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, the only problem is it goes so fast. Yeah. Because you can of... literally eat it with everything. Right. On eggs, on toast, as a lunch, as a soup, <laughs> as yeah. a chip dip, <laughs> as a topping on your meat. Yeah. It's for everything. So, well, now getting into the episode, that brings us right to our guest and the topic of this week. Yeah. Today we're talking to Julia Skinner of Root, Historic Kitchens for the Modern World. Root was born from Julia's deep love for community and a belief in the power of food to tell stories, connect us to place and to each other, and to build a bridge to the past. Julia's work is all about food history, food stories, and where it comes from, and the people behind it. She loves fostering connections with other people and with the earth around us. And Julia's especially interested in learning and teaching about fermentation, which is one of the most ancient and powerful techniques for preparing delicious and healthy food and you don't need much equipment and you really don't need much know-how either. The instructions are quite simple. And as we were just saying, we're really big fans of fermentation. And this is one of the reasons why we really enjoyed this conversation with Julia so much. There was so much in there. Though. There was. And we just kind of went all over the place with food and culture and food history. And it was really, really fun. It's cool that food is, you know, one of the very few things that tangibly ties us to our ancestors. Absolutely. Absolutely. You've always had to eat food, haven't we? Yeah, and I love what Julie was saying about really feeling this deep connection to her ancestral heritage that she was really not even that aware of. And you'll hear about that in this episode. Right. We're so excited to share this with you. And so without further ado, here's Julia Skinner. My name is Julia Skinner, and I am a food writer. I am the founder of Root, which is a fermentation and food history company based in Atlanta. And I do all kinds of other stuff. I do visual art. I garden. I take all kinds of, you know, interesting classes and spend time in nature. 
But most of what I do is writing around fermentation and food history and teaching classes around it. And so I started, I mean, my, like my professional journey has been all over the place. Like I started out getting an undergrad in social psychology and then I changed my mind and I went into library science. But while I was doing that, I was driving city buses and working at a library. And then I got a PhD and managed a rare book collection <laughs> and then started this business. So it's like been all over the place. I love that so much. So yeah. I can relate. <laughs> and so I think this curiosity and this desire to experience all these different things and being surprised at how all those things end up matching up and interplaying and overlapping in ways you didn't expect. Part of why I feel like I'm always looking for different things to do and have had this whole crazy trajectory is because I'm like, oh, hey, like it turns out bus driving actually really helps me do this other thing. Like who would have thought? And so now I can have all these things kind of build on each other. Also, it's so funny because I feel like secretly one of my secret jobs I wish I could do is be a bus driver. I don't know if I've ever said that. Yeah. <laughs> I, could, I just, I, I love people and I love them. I don't like love driving, but I feel like bus driving would be different. And It's different. Yeah. Yeah. Besides the work I do now, I mean, as far as jobs for other people, that's been like the most fun job. Like you just drive around and it's great because if you drive early mornings, you can watch the sunrise and you're like drinking your coffee and driving the bus <laughs> and everybody's too tired to talk with you. So they just kind of get on and sit down. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. Like early morning buses are really the best. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. So what would you say? I'm sure you've had a lot of aha moments, but I'm curious as to what was your aha moment, if there was one, about what you're doing now, like the whole fermentation thing. Yeah, or maybe that led you to the book or something. Yeah. So I've always obviously been interested in food. I mean, I think most people who come to food as a career have a lifelong interest in it for the most part. But when I became interested in food history, it was actually during, I have a master's in library science and in book art and book history. So do I. <laughs> oh, really? Did you hear at Emory by any chance? I didn't. I, oh, okay. My MA is from Iowa and then my doctorate's from Florida State. I got my master's in library science at Emory right there in Atlanta. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think they have that program anymore. But anyway, go ahead. During my graduate program, one of the things that we were looking at was the history of books, right? And so we went into the special collections at the library and looked at all these medieval manuscripts and early modern books and kind of all over the place. And there was one that they brought out. And I was like, what on earth is this thing? I am just so fascinated by it. And it was this book that I still turn to a lot. It's Mr. Gervais Markham's The English Housewife. It was published first in 1615. It went through several iterations after that. I think the last edition is from like the 1680s. But it was really interesting to me because it was unlike any other cookbook I had seen at that point. The recipes looked different. I mean, obviously the paper and everything was different and the printing was, you know, like all of that book structure stuff was different, but the actual recipes themselves looked different. And so it was really interesting to see that and then kind of get curiosity around it. I ended up researching that for my final project for the center for the book. And then when I went on to get my PhD, I wasn't really doing as much with actual food history because I was, you know, writing my dissertation and stuff on library science. So I was like a little busy. But as I was in my PhD program, I didn't really focus on it. And then, you know, I got more and more interested after I graduated. Graduated, I started working with rare books again, and I was like, oh, I can finally go back to looking at these old cookbooks. 
And then from there, once I left that job, I didn't have another position lined up. And I was like, this may be my only time where I'm, you know, I'm going to let myself actually sit down and think, what is it I really want to do? Not just what trajectory am I on, but like, if I'm going to switch trajectories, like this is the time. And so I did. And I was like, I really want to work more with food. I really want to do all of that. And so that was kind of how I started Root was in 2018, kind of having all those realizations. We hear that so often with people we talk to, they reach a point where they sit down and kind of just try to get quiet, remove all the noise and say, what is it I really want to do? Mm-hmm. And it leads them in all these fantastic, wonderful projects and niches and book titles and companies. And I just love it so much. I love Root. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> what a great name for a company and what you're doing. This is fabulous. Thank um, you. Yeah. So what about root veered you into the whole fermented thing, which ends up being just so vast, you know, fermented foods? So I got into fermented foods. I mean, I've been fermenting for probably about 15 years or so. How did you first know about it? What led you to that in the very beginning, like for your own personal use? So I first got into fermentation, like in my early to mid 20s. I was in college and working and going to school and broke like most people are in their early 20s. And so I was relying a lot on food from food pantries or whatever was cheapest from the grocery store. And so it wasn't exactly the most balanced diet on the planet. And I finally got an apartment that had like not only its own kitchen, which was great because the place I had lived before was like a rooming house with six people you shared a kitchen with. And that was a lot. So I had finally my own kitchen, but I also had this tiny little garden patch out front. And so I could actually start growing stuff. And I had gardened a little bit before, but I hadn't that much. And I discovered that all the stuff comes ripe at the same time. And you yeah, have to figure out. There is something with it. <laughs> Isn't that funny how that works? <laughs> you grow food, then you have food. And then you have food and like a lot of food and like food that I think we're not used to dealing with just having an abundance of it and then, you know, not in modern society. And so I didn't know what to do. And so I talked with a friend who grew up on a farm and she's like, well, make sauerkraut. And I was like, oh, yeah, OK. And so... And so kind of started there and branched out. I feel like a lot of people, at least that I talk to in the U.S., kind of start with sauerkraut and expand out to other ferments. The gateway. So were you growing cabbage or was it like carrots and just like other stuff you're just kind of fermenting? I mean, both. I was growing, I grew some cabbages and that was kind of how the sauerkraut thing started. I lived in Iowa at the time. And so there was like a long enough spring that you could grow cabbages. I feel like when I try to grow them here in Georgia, like I know other people who know what they're doing better than I do have more success. Yeah. I just don't put them in the ground at the right time here. So it never works. But there it did. And see, I would grow some root vegetables, mostly like cabbages and greens and then in the summer just like insane numbers of tomatoes and zucchinis yeah wow so 15 years ago was before the whole fermentation craze so to speak or not craze but i would say burgeoning interest Mm -hmm. people were familiar with sauerkraut but they probably were not familiar with the fact that the 
sauerkraut that you would buy in the store, probably none of it was like real sauerkraut. It was just like Mm -hmm. brined and vinegar, not the real alive probiotic sauerkraut that we think of as being the traditional kind. So you were ahead of your time and give us the trajectory from there. Sauerkraut, of course, is only one Mm -hmm. kind of fermented food and there's so many. It's like a vast world. And tell us about that. You know, I started out kind of just doing lacto-fermentation for the most part. I would make sauerkraut, I would make pickled vegetables, yogurt. And then, you know, over time I got interested in other things, but it was still very much a hobby for me. It actually wasn't until in 2018 I had a residency with Sander Katz. And it was interestingly timed because about a month prior to that, my mom had died unexpectedly. And when she did, the last thing she told me was to tell people about the food. And then I had this residency like a month later was a space where I felt really comfortable and where I felt really myself and like I was just among friends. Like it was a really good space as well as just being an interesting topic. And so the timing of those two things felt very much like something was telling me I needed to focus more on fermentation. And so I did. So I moved. My business was initially more focused on like food history sort of consulting and some writing stuff. And then I brought in more fermentation and fermentation education into the mix and then kind of smashed that together with my food history stuff and then wrote a book about it. (laughs) That was a sweet story. So tell us how this book came to be. So once I started focusing on fermentation more, of course, you know, there's so many rabbit holes you can go down. I mean, there was stuff that I hadn't really ever played with before, like koji, right? I had not really experimented with that hardly at all prior to going up to that residency. And, you know, I started making friends who were really into fermentation, had all these things to teach me. It was just like, oh God, there's so much. And like every culture has ferments and look at all the ways we use ferments. And like, why has nobody put this all in one place? People have put a lot of it in places like Sander Katz's Art of Fermentation, I think is the one people often think of where there is a lot of this stuff, but it's, you know, it's organized a bit differently. And so it was like, it'd be really nice to organize it by the different ways that we as humans have been influenced by these foods. And so that was kind of how the book came about. And I wrote out a proposal. I was really lucky. I happened to meet my agent completely unexpectedly. I went to this event that another friend was speaking at, and my agent happened to be speaking there. And I didn't know, and I was introduced to her, and she was like, oh, you sent me a book proposal. I want it. <laughs> Weird. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so, like, wow. It kind of all happened at once that I had somebody who wanted to represent the book, and then she shopped it around, and then I wrote it, and delays and pandemic and everything kind of made it so it's not coming out until this year. But that's actually good because I want to be able to travel around and talk with people and show people this stuff. And like, engage with them and like I'm sure I'll do virtual events too but it's nice to have the option to bring the book out into the world in a few different ways totally wow that's such a funny story <laughs> being your agent that way uh-huh. yeah I know it's so unexpected like it <laughs> yeah so what is your elevator pitch about fermented foods for people who are new to this idea my grandpa likes to call them rotten vegetables <laughs> So I think there's a lot of intimidation around ferments, and there doesn't have to be. I really like 
I like the more positive framing. Like Sanders says, his description is the transformative action of microbes. And I like that idea of transformation and thinking about the way that that transformation helps us in all these different ways, preserve food, make nutrients available to our bodies, develop new flavors, like all of this interesting stuff that we can do. So, you know, it's something that maybe is intimidating for people, but I think is worth recognizing both its value to us, but also the fact that people are eating a ton of ferments anyways, like whether or not they realize it. So like, you don't need to be afraid of it. So I think a lot of people from the get go are really concerned about the safety of it. Like, you know, like my dad calling it rotten Mm -hmm. vegetables. He, He sees it. He thinks you're just eating things that are half rotten. And how do you frame it so that people go, oh, okay. And, you know. Well, I mean, I think framing it in in the way that it's something that we've been doing for, you know, I mean, thousands and thousands of years. And, yeah. you know, it's something that the microbes that we're working with, we're collaborating with these microbes who we literally rely on to survive, like to digest our food. Like the microbes that we're working with, provided that we follow the right safety precautions. I mean, you know, like make sure you're doing it safely, but especially with fermented vegetables, not that hard to do safely. Like it is actually pretty easy and you get all these probiotics and you get all these healthy benefits. And I tell people too, even if they fail, like to not look at failure as failure with fermentation, because it's always a chance to learn something else and to, you know, to kind of understand what happens so that you can make it better in the future, learn more about that process. I mean, fermentation is just such a place for experimentation that I think it doesn't need us to be intimidated or to do any of that. We can just kind of dig in and play and explore. And it is very safe. Uh Talk about that. You're not going to kill your family. Right. I mean, there are ways that you can make fermentation unsafe, but it is hard to do, especially if you're new to it. Just follow a recipe from a trusted source and you'll be fine. I mean, look at the best practices that that person tells you. Like, for example, when I teach fermentation classes, one of the first things I tell people to do is to make sure that they're keeping things under the brine. If you keep things under the brine, if you're making sauerkraut and it has that brine over it, you're going to drastically reduce the serious problems you might have with that. And if you check it regularly, you know, that's good too. You can catch problems early. You can make sure stuff's under the brine. You can make sure it's kind of doing what it needs to do. Yeah, I mean, fermented vegetables, incredibly safe. I mean, like meat fermentation, you want to take a little more care. People have been fermenting meat safely for thousands and thousands of years too. So as long as, again, as long as you're following the best practices, it is very safe to do. And do you teach a lot of fermenting workshops? Mm Mm-hmm. So before the pandemic, I taught a lot of them in person and then obviously wasn't for um, for a couple of years like the rest of us. <laughs> and so I was at the time I was already teaching classes online, self-paced online ones where basically people sign up and they just can kind of go in and do stuff whenever they don't have to go to timed sessions with me. That obviously picked up during the pandemic. I am going to be teaching a few in-person workshops this year. And I'm kind of trying to decide what I want to do for those moving forward, but they really are fun to teach. Like I don't want to ever stop doing it completely because yeah, it's so fun to watch somebody make ferments for the first time and realize that they can do it. And then, you know, they'll email me a week later and there's like, I did it. Look like the sauerkraut is sauerkraut. Yeah. So it is so exciting yeah. and it is fun to watch other people get excited. Yeah, it is fun when you do it on community. And that's something that the Zoom classes and the online stuff has afforded people to really mm-hmm. share about yeah. their results and show pictures and 
It's really fun. So you're younger than I am, but I think you and Emma are the same generation. But talk about like growing up and where you see, you've written about the history of food. You have researched it a lot. What in your own experiences, what transformations have you seen in food culture in your lifetime? I love this topic. I love because it speaks to our times so much, you know? You know, when I was growing up, we had, I think it was at a time, you know, early 80s was when I was born. So still a lot of convenience food. I mean, there's still a lot of convenience food now, but I think maybe more widespread public awareness wasn't yet there about natural foods and you know, whole grains and all these things. So I think that's definitely a shift. You know, we ate that stuff when I was growing up. We ate raw vegetables and whole grain things and stuff. But we also ate processed food too. Like we just kind of ate all kinds of stuff. But as an adult, I've noticed more people having an interest in fermentation, but in kind of all of these different, more traditional food making processes Mm -hmm. and, you know, different ways of exploring food and health. But in tandem with that, one thing I appreciate is that we're starting to see more conversations around access and money and things like that, like how, whether or not people can access these healthy foods and what those conversations look like and how we can promote that. And I'm glad to see that too, because of course, you know, I can be like, everybody eat fermented vegetables all the time and use organic vegetables. But like, if you don't have access to organic vegetables, like it it doesn't matter how many times I tell you or how bad Mm -hmm. you want to. So it's been nice to see that conversation. And during the pandemic too, I think we really saw this. I don't know if you two experienced this as well, but I noticed at the start of the pandemic, suddenly there was this huge interest in reducing food waste in fermentation and all of these things, you know, things that I had already been teaching about, but suddenly because people were like, oh, I really actually need to preserve my food and stretch my food because maybe our supply chains aren't as, you know, as perfect as I might have thought they are. Mm -hmm. You know, suddenly I was teaching all of these classes around food waste even more than usual and around, you know, fermentation and stuff. And I was wondering as the pandemic went on, how people's relationship with those two things would change. Like, would people suddenly stop caring about food waste? Would they care less about fermentation? Like, would they just go back to old whatever habits? But it seems like At least a lot of the people I'm talking to and following online and everything are still very much in those spaces, are still very much interested in fermentation, in reducing food waste, in educating others. So that's that's been really a nice, nice thing to see. Yeah, I think so. I agree with you. I think that it it was definitely a thing during the pandemic, but I think it's carried on. Yeah, I think it did have an effect. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this just surge in people's interest in growing their own food. I think that is sort of tapered off. Mm -hmm. To your point, I think some things have persisted, one of them being our sort of lack of confidence or lack of total confidence, Mm -hmm. should I say, in the supply chains. Yeah. We've been experiencing that kind of on and off throughout the thing. Yeah, totally. And understanding that having an awareness of how to have these skills to stretch your food farther, like it's not a bad thing, even if it's not something you use all the time, at least knowing Mm -hmm. how to do it. I think a lot of people are like, I at least want the skills just in case, want to know how to do it. So 
Yeah, it's an interesting time to be in food education, whole foods, fermentation sort of stuff. What other food culture trends do you see emerging or disappearing or anything about that? Well, going back to discussions of access around food, I'm really interested to see where those conversations go. Because we have, you know, we have all these different ways that we talk about bringing healthy food to communities in food deserts and things, but it's a complex issue. There's, you know, kind of complex problems around it. And so I'm curious to see how those conversations continue to evolve, what solutions people come up with. And again, I think the pandemic made that more pronounced, made those conversations more pronounced. Like here in Atlanta, we now have the 399 fridge, which is a mutual aid free fridge program. And Mm. they're wonderful because people can drop food, people can pick up food. You know, you don't have to wait at a food pantry and do all of that. You just, you go, there's food there and you can get it. And so that's been something that I've been trying to contribute to a lot. And a lot of people have, other people have too. And can you explain a little more about how that works? Yeah. So there's free fridges, I think existed, you know, before the pandemic too, but I think really got legs with the that initial round of layoffs and everything and closures and lockdowns mm-hmm. and stuff. Basically, it's a refrigerator and usually like shelves, pantry for shelf-stable foods. Mm-hmm. And they'll be in front of a business or in front of, you know, a church or something like that. And they just, community members can come and stock the fridge with, you know, like I can go to the store and buy boxes of spaghetti, for example and put the boxes of noodles in the pantry area. Or I can go and get stuff and make like, I don't know, a batch of spaghetti and put it in containers and put it in the fridge. That's so cool. Yeah. And then like people who are hungry can just come and be like, I would like some spaghetti (laughs) and take it out of the fridge and imagine, imagine, you know, or whatever, whatever (laughs) it is that happens to be in there. But (laughs) yeah, yeah, you can go and get it. You know, you don't have to like fill out forms or prove that you need the food or like, yeah. As somebody who's been to food banks before, as a recipient of aid, I really appreciate that it's not asking people to have to jump through hoops to try to eat dinner. That's one of the things I'm excited to see about trends in food and food culture. We're just starting to recognize that we need to be talking more about like the actual dignity of the people receiving aid and talking not only about how to give them aid, but give them aid that is the aid they need and that, you know, they identify as wanting. So... I don't know. That's a whole time read, but. <laughs> no, it's fascinating and it's, I think, totally irrelevant. So what does 99 mean? It's it's free 99? Uh-huh, free 99 fridge. I know people say like free 99 is just like slang for free, but I don't know if it's anything more than that. So. Oh, like 199, 299, like a price. Yeah. Oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah. Free 99. So it also it reminds me of that free library concept. Yeah. With the mm-hmm. books just a natural extension of that. And I want to go back to what you were saying about, because I think it's so important and I invite you to talk even more about it, this sort of growing awareness of the dignity mm-hmm. of people that need to receive basic resources. It is not like they're they're there because they didn't work hard enough or they're, you know, you know, it's whatever, they're human beings. So anyway, talk about that a little bit. I actually just had a conversation, gosh, like a week or two ago for my newsletter. I did an interview with somebody who runs a farmer's market. And one of the things was the fact that so often when 
these aid programs are developed, one of the big things that happens is a bunch of people come into a room and are like, they don't have enough food in this place. We must bring food to the place. But nobody ever really asks the people who live there or who are getting the aid what they need. Like, for example, like, well, do you need something like a free fridge or do you want to learn how to garden in a community garden or both or whatever? Mm -hmm. But nobody ever asks. So you end up with these programs that are very well-meaning, but maybe don't have the most important stakeholders involved, which is the people who you're trying to feed. (laughs) So interesting. It's like (laughs) your idea of what will help someone. But if you really want to help, then the best thing to do is like ask. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what do you need? Because it might not be, it might not be what you think it is or the way that you're thinking of giving them that thing might not actually be what they want or what's useful for them. Like if I'm like, don't worry, I'm going to bring you a bunch of cans of food. And they're like, yeah, but like I can get cans with WIC. It's fine. What I need is, I don't know, vegetables or something. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I guess in our space, we see also a lot of interest in creating more food grown in urban areas, densely populated urban areas, and a lot more education around that and a lot more interest in that. And also a lot more awareness of people in these food deserts or however you want to put that, (laughs) understanding the value, the real value of Mm -hmm. that just to their health and to the climate and just so many, so many things. And having that connection to where instead of just like, here's some cans that have maybe been shipped across Mm -hmm. the country four times, providing the opportunity to create that relationship with your food. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, teaching people you know, how to use that stuff. Like, you know, one of the community gardens here, they're talking about doing, you know, fermentation and food waste classes. I'll be working with them to teach a class in July. And part of the goal behind it is to help people have more ideas for what to do with this stuff, because they're in the same situation that I was 15 years ago, where Great. Now you've got mm-hmm. these vegetables. Well, like, what do you do with them now? So yeah. that sort of education component. You know, and I think like food rescues, too. We haven't really touched on that yet, but that's another kind of interesting food redistribution thing. Go ahead. What is food rescue? Yeah, go for it. So food rescues basically take food that might be wasted somewhere let's say leftover food from a catering or, you know, something like that. Food that can't be resold but isn't bad, like it's perfectly good food, but some company will throw it out for whatever kind of, you know, oh, it's mislabeled or it's, you know, something's going on. There's organizations. So here in Atlanta, Gooder is one of them. And then Umi Feeds is another. And I've worked more closely with Umi Feeds. What the woman who runs it does is she she takes food, you know, people will donate food to her and she redistributes it out into the community of unhoused folks in Atlanta. So she actually goes out in the streets and hands it out. And Gooder does food redistribution as well. I'm less familiar with exactly like what their distribution model looks like, but I know that they do rescue a ton, a ton of food in town. So cool. I'm interested, kind of going back to the food history part of it, what gets you excited about the history of fermentation? Like tell us some cool stories. (laughs) There's so many interesting things, you know, like you said, when we were starting this conversation is it's such a big topic, right? It's there's so much to Mm -hmm. dive into. And so, you know, there's all of these interesting stories about how different foods developed and the fact that like, you know, hot peppers are not actually something that we saw in, say, like 
So gochujang, the hot pepper paste in Korean cuisine. I mean, people in, you know, say the 1300s in Korea would have had no idea what that was because they didn't have hot peppers. You know, things like that. And, you know, I think, too, going back to thinking about access and things, one thing that came up for me a lot was access to information, whose stories were preserved, whose stories are being told. And that's one of the interesting things about studying history for me is it's not only a chance to appraise what is there and try to get your arms around this big topic, but also to take note of whose voices aren't there. And like at the end of the book, I do a lot of being like, please write this stuff down, please, everyone. We need this for the future. So like it kind of, because I'm encouraging people to write it down and I'm also thinking about the past, it's very much like situating ourselves as being a part of this history and a part of this trajectory. And that I think is the most exciting thing about fermentation history. You're part of something that is both, I mean, on a micro level, completely unseen, but the effects of it are very obvious. And then, you know, it kind of has this ripple effect and you, you know, you meet this community and you learn these things and then you're building on stuff that happened before and, you know, building stuff for people to do in the future. And like, It's just all of this giant magical world. That's so fascinating. (laughs) I love thinking about it like that. There's also a certain responsibility to it, too, that feels like you're you are taking part in this kind of system that's bigger than Mm -hmm. you are. And we've talked about it before on here a little bit, that same feeling when you're kneading a thing Mm -hmm. of bread and you're like, how many people before me, my ancestors like needed bread? And I sort of feel that way when I'm like making Mm -hmm. sauerkraut or kefir. It's like just this simple thing that humans have been doing but I haven't thought about it also I'm mm-hmm. it and I'm gonna be history one day that's so interesting yeah it's but it's weird because it, it's like thinking about our own practice but not centering ourselves in our own practice yes. it's like it's a different way of thinking about how you cook I guess yeah so do you have a favorite story or favorite something to share from the book or even an experience you had while writing it? Just something that strikes you as just something to pass on. (laughs) There is an experience that I had while writing it that, you know, I've been thinking about because my friend Jessamine brought it up to me the other day that it like it struck her while she was reading as well. She mentioned it. And so I was like kind of going back through and I was like, yeah, this was a really special thing. So most of my ancestry is Celtic and Scottish. Like that's most of kind of where my people are from is Celtic France and Scotland for the most part. And so there's this one Scottish dish that I had never heard of until I started researching this book called Sowens. And so Sowens is when you mill oats, it's fermenting the holes and getting those last little bits of starch off of the holes. And like, so fermenting it to separate that out and to sour those, and then you use them as a beverage or cook them down as a porridge. So all these different things you can do with it. But so I started making that. And the first time that I had it, and I hadn't known what this was until, I don't know, a week before I tried making it. You know, I like I barely knew the history of it, but it felt really familiar. I was like, I know this flavor. And I was like, but I don't. I've never had this before. That's weird <laughs> and awesome. Oh, I love that. Like your collective yeah, memory. So it was like, it was... It was really, really interesting. And it's, I don't know, it it was like a reminder of the power of being able to access those foods and access those traditional foods and kind of, you know, that maybe even if it's not like that much of a light bulb sort of moment, like you're still having that connection. 
you know, that sounds almost like you were having a, a real cellular connection to mm-hmm. your own ancestors. Yeah, yeah, it was wild. <laughs> That's fascinating. That reminds me, um, I guess my favorite fermented food is mm-hmm. kefir. And Emma had a friend over one time and I asked her if she wanted to taste my kefir and was explaining mm-hmm. what it was and stuff. And she said she had never heard of it, didn't know what it was. And then she took a sip and she goes, this is what my grandmother used to make. Oh, she, you know, hadn't remembered or didn't know the word or yeah. whatever. And she was... She's Costa Rican. Her parents came here from Costa Rica. Yeah. So there was that cultural connection. And, you know, I wouldn't have thought that, you know, Kiefer was Costa Rican. It's, you know, from more like the Turkey area, but whatever their version mm-hmm. of it was, that's probably why she didn't know the word. So yeah. do you have Kiefer in your book? I haven't seen it yet, but the index wasn't there. So I mention it. I don't have a recipe for it in the book. Oh, I'll have to give you Yeah, I, well, I, I, so I actually grow it. I have it in my house. I just don't have the recipe. In the yeah, grow little, yeah, grain. little grains. Yeah, I got them at the start of the pandemic. Like, I got them, like, a month before the pandemic started. And they're just like, I don't know, they're still going. And so I just feed them every couple days. Is it water kefir or milk kefir? Milk kefir. So for the next version of the book, Mm-hmm. There's a real fun story on the history of kefir and how it got to. Have you heard it? I've how it got to the country. It, it involves betrayal, intrigue, princesses, romance. I will have to look into this. It actually might need some research. We need someone to research it because it sounds a little fantastical. <laughs> so, what does a fermented life mean to you? Yeah. Well, fermented <laughs> life. I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I think when we think about like things like slow food or things like that, I think can fall under a similar way of thinking about food. You know, it's it's asking us to participate in the world a bit differently than, you know, the like nose to the grindstone, nine to five kind of basically like a very dissociated way of living. And this isn't like, I'm not trying to like knock on people who have nine to five jobs at all or any of that. But I think there can be a tendency for folks who aren't kind of intentionally creating a life to kind of dissociate and float along. And that's, again, that's not a dig on that journey at all. But for me, a fermented life is much more, you know, if you think about fermentation, it's always moving and active and changing. And it asks us to engage in the world in that way. You can't engage with a ferment and just be, oh yeah, I'm making the sauerkraut, but I'm like not even really paying attention. Like you can, but it's hard to do. Yeah. It really asks for your full attention and sensory engagement. So I think thinking of our fermented lives as being very much something that asks us to intentionally create that life and to think about what that life looks like, how it's transforming, how it's growing, And, you know, like I said before, how it's connecting to the past, you know, how is this fermented life building and all the fermented lives that have already been here? Oh, I love that. (laughs) It's so poetic and beautiful. It's wonderful. And the fermented life sounds a lot like slow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. And it does. It is slow. It takes a while. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely can't ferment something, you know, at the pace that we're used to. It's definitely not on-demand food. Yeah. So would you have anything more to add to that on in terms of you know what does slow living mean to you and how do you incorporate that into your daily life now yeah so you know slow living i think is really interesting because i've always liked the idea of slow living but then have not always embodied it very well like i wrote my dissertation in about six months like to give you a sense of like how not well I do at embodying slow living sometimes that's okay we have a whole podcast on slow living and my google calendar makes you dizzy so 
Okay. <laughs> I'm getting much better about it, which is good. And actually fermentation has been really central to that. You know, I yeah. think slow living, I feel like, you know, if we're just like going and going and going and not stopping to appreciate all the blessings we have on the way, I mean, what's the point of all this if I just go and then fall over at some point? <laughs> like, I should probably appreciate yeah. You know, for me, slow living is very much connected with mindfulness and intention and all of that. I actually taught a class or I built a class for fermentation school on ferments for mindfulness because using fermentation to cultivate mindfulness has actually been one of the ways that I've been able to incorporate slow living into my life to make myself slow down and develop a practice that actually is starting my day with the appreciation for the stuff, starting my day being creative. The first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I put the kettle on to make some coffee and then I immediately just start playing with ferments. I just kind of pick stuff up and smell it and move stuff around. And, yeah, like see, see how's everybody's doing. <laughs> Yeah. And starting my day like that, I mean, has been absolutely transformative because the first thing I'm doing with my day is both something I love, but something that's in partnership. I'm working with these other yeah. beings to make this food and I'm slowing down and taking time to notice that. And so I think slow living is revolutionary in that way in that it asks us to have those moments and it makes those moments non-optional. It's not like I can just not do this when I don't feel like it. It's like, no, this is actually at the core of what I'm here to do. I love that so much. And <laughs> yeah. not only does it, like you said, something like you're in relationship with it, not only are you in relationship with it, but ferments truly nourish you in a way that almost nothing else mm -hmm. can and there's really no real substitute sure you can get probiotics and little capsules in a bottle but it's not the same yeah. and it's really hard to bottle that stuff in an industrial way on scale and mm -hmm. it's sort of in addition to what you're saying all those wonderful things I love it as kind of an escape from the system mm -hmm. that we're in and it's really empowering and you can do it yourself yeah. and yeah it's kind of like everything we want to be doing incorporated in this little quite simple actually thing well I, I often tell people nobody owns fermentation and nobody can own fermentation it's truly democratic i mean it's a force of nature like cooking with fire nobody's gonna own yeah. fire nobody's gonna gather up all the fermentation microbes and be like nope they're mine like you can't have them you have to pay me for them i mean as you were talking i was like yeah that reminds me so much of that aspect of it as well i mean while researching this book and, you know, when organizations are like, look, brand new thing that ferments do or something. I'm like, yeah, but it's not a brand new thing they do. You happen to isolate the strain into a probiotic, so now you can make money out of it. Yeah. I'm not saying all of the research is bad. There's lots of good research out there, but it's always good to follow the money. And things that are kind of set aside or categorized, I guess, as like folk remedies mm -hmm. or, you know, they have there's anecdotal evidence that this helps with this. Those are the things I'm really interested mm -hmm. in. Those are the things that, and this is, all, of course, in addition to all the wonderful things that allopathic medicine is, mm -hmm. offers us, right? But personally, if there is a folk practice that something helps with this thing, I'm very interested mm -hmm. in that because that statement has been around a very long time. Yeah, it's survived a lot. Yeah. Yeah, a lot longer than whatever comes in the plastic bottle in the mm -hmm. drugstore. No, and I think it's interesting, too. You're starting to see studies that talk about the benefits of some of these natural remedies that are the stated benefits of them. We're in an interesting moment where I think there's beginning to be recognition for 
the power of plant medicines, for the power of homemade living foods. The fact that like the sauerkraut that I make at my house is different from the sauerkraut somebody else makes is different from the stuff at the store. And what does that mean? How does that impact our bodies? I mean, I think it's a really, really interesting time to be around all this research and have it all happening. And the fact that you can't quantify all of that, you can't quantify your sauerkraut versus my sauerkraut is just not going to happen. You kind of just embrace the subjectivity mm -hmm. of this. And it is fascinating. And understanding that, you know, there's a large part of our a scientific culture that thrives on studies, peer reviews and all that stuff, which is mm -hmm. great, but not everything can fit into that category. So how are we going to deal with that? Are we going to reject it? Are we going to have a way of considering it and implementing it into our mm -hmm. daily lives? You know? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of how people engage with traditional remedies and with fermented foods and everything moving forward. So I feel like we're at a time where our perspectives are shifting and a lot of people are returning to more herbal medicine and things like that. So I'm kind of curious to see where that goes. Like personally, I value allopathic medicine and all of the good things it offers, but I personally also yeah. engage with herbalism and things like that. And so for me, it's it's kind of interesting to watch our larger cultural conversations kind of line up with my own experience of returning to herbal medicine too. Yeah. And respecting all that we have now, all yeah. the science. So many resources. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it doesn't have to be mm -hmm. either or. It doesn't have to be one and yeah. the other. Absolutely. And my favorite thing, like we said, is same with herbs. It's very, it's very democratic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't oh, have to cost anything. Yeah. Especially a lot of the herbs and stuff, they're so good for you. Or like weeds. Yeah, they're just like, like hey, I'm a dandelion. Just, like, wouldn't you like to yeah. eat me? <laughs> I do all these amazing things. I feel such a sense of wonder, like especially now here in the last mm -hmm. week or so, that I can literally just step outside my kitchen door and take just a couple mm -hmm. of steps and just snip the most delicious nutritious salad that costs me mm -hmm. zero mm -hmm. and chicken mm -hmm. and dandelion and take it in rinse it off mix it up little salt vinegar oil just divine yeah. i mean to me that's that's just the most wonderful thing i just yeah. love that so much no it's beautiful and it's you know it's so outside of our kind of the way that we've been trained yeah. of like anything that we're going to consume it has to have been a commodity at some point and yeah, I love that that's an example of the ways that, you know, we can think about eating outside of commodification. Yes, we can learn safely and with a certain amount mm -hmm. of knowledge to eat without a giant industry in between us and our food. <laughs> yeah. Going back to ferments and all the ferments on your counter. Yeah. Really, yeah. In my experience, at least, it's also so forgiving mm -hmm. in a way that... I find we're also not used to as humans. We like things really black and white and rule followers mm -hmm. and check boxes. And turns out that nature it doesn't necessarily like have to be like that. <laughs> yeah. And especially like my sourdough starter. People love to just really stress out about their mm -hmm. sourdough starter. And I find it's such relief there because it really much more fits my personality of like, Oops, I forgot, you know, yeah. like, and it's totally fine yeah. and it's so bubbly and happy yeah. or it's a little bit sad, but then it and it's fine. I know. I'll leave it on the counter and I'll be gone for a couple of weeks and come back and I'll be like, oh, better feed this guy. And like, it's, yeah, it's fine. Once they're established, I mean, microbial communities are pretty hardy. Like a kombucha scoby yeah. or your sourdough starter. I mean, yes, you can kill them. 
But like, mm-hmm. if you take half an interest in it, it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My sourdough starters are like old friends and not make bread for a while. And it's back mm-hmm. there in the fridge with the little stuff on top. And I pull it out and feed it a little bit, love it a little bit. It's mm-hmm. great. So it comes back. It's just on here. That also brings me to the kind of subjectivity of it. And yes, there are recipes and recipes are so helpful and we need them. Our sort of Western brains really mm-hmm. want those. There's a lot of intuition in it. And when I first ran across Sander Katz, this has been many years ago, and I thought, oh, I want to know how to do this. I found him to be, and maybe his more recent works are not this way, but I found him to be very, it was very intuitive. Like, is that true? I mean, does he doesn't, does he give exact amounts of salt? I mean, it depends. I could be recalling this wrong. I just remember being, I want a recipe. And he was more like making suggestions. Mm -hmm. Is that right? So, I mean, he does offer some recipes some places. I think his approach and mine are similar in that, okay, try to make your brine within this range or whatever, but acknowledging that it is an intuitive thing. Yes, you want to yeah. you, you want to add enough salt for it to be safe and all of that. But you also, it might be that at different times, maybe you want more or less salt. Depending what time of the month it is in my own cycle, like I'll really want salty, salty food. And then other times I'll be like, oh God, like no, no. So allowing yourself that space, because there is that range that you can ferment vegetables in. And so his work, I think mine does this as well. He's been doing it, obviously, for many, many more years than I have, but writing about ferments. And so I think his work is, it's intuitive, but it's grounded in education and in in a trying to establish trust in oneself that you know how to do this you've got this mistakes are just spaces for learning yeah. don't be afraid right it's very nice he really takes the mystery out of her and be like his whole thing is like this is no big deal relax yeah yeah it's like you'll be <laughs> that's fine. what it feels you'll like fine yeah yeah <laughs> no i remember when i was at that residency and i what was it we made i think tempeh or something that ended up not quite turning out and he was just like whoop didn't work and it was fine it's like <laughs> All of us, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing this. Some of your stuff isn't going to work sometimes. And who cares? It's okay. (laughs) Plenty of my bread loaves are just like, I know, same. My sourdough bread. I just make sourdough pancakes most of the time. (laughs) I'm not as good at the bread part. It's the bread flour. It's a game changer. Got to make sure you have bread flour. Well, whatever happens, the chickens like it. Yeah, no, that's kind of my thing, too, is I'm like, the chickens and quail can get it, and great. Like, somebody will eat it. It just won't be me. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) Well, Julia, what does the good dirt mean to you? I mean, it's this interplay, right, between, like, there's good dirt that's the actual dirt that we can grow things in that's, you know, vital and, you know, all of that. But a big part of that vitality is the microbiome, the Earth's microbiome. And so, like, for me, good dirt is not just, say, I don't know, like the nitrogen level or whatever, but it's it's also the actual living unseen forces that are in this dirt that actually make it so we can grow this stuff and we can ferment this stuff. And then the mycorrhizal networks that connect so many of our trees together and help them talk and help, you know, move nutrients around. I mean, good dirt for me is very much that. And like, I was thinking, you know, when you mentioned good dirt, I was thinking about like, are you familiar with the Korean uh, concept of sanmat, hands taste? So it's this concept that's basically 
when you make food, you impart your own flavor into it. So hands taste is like the taste of my hands going into my food. And so in fermentation, that's very profound, right? Because, you know, we are putting our hands into living food, like we are actually having an impact on it. But, it, you know, it doesn't always refer to ferments. It refers to kind of like the way that your food tastes that's unique, you know, in general. So when I think about good dirt, it's like kind of the san mat, but of the land that I'm growing this stuff in. So it's like imparting these particular microbes, imparting this particular flavor, like all of these different things. That was a whole tangent. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that so much. <laughs> No, that's awesome. It's like, you know, no one makes the cookies like grandma or whatever. I guess it's that mm-hmm. same idea. Yeah, I have my grandma's meatloaf recipe and I've been trying to make it and I've watched her make it. I've mm-hmm. followed the recipe. Like she actually wrote the recipe down as she makes it, which is kind of uncommon. Mm-hmm. So it's actually written down right. My meatloaf will never taste the same. Like yeah. I'm just never going to have that meatloaf again. But yeah, <laughs> but it was nice. I enjoyed it while I had it. I love that 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 they have a word for that in Korean. That's summed up in the phrase like just like mom makes yeah. it, yeah. Like grandma makes it, or that sums up that whole concept. And come to think, it it's a real thing. Yeah, it's not just in your head. <laughs> no, I mean I think that concept exists in so many places for a reason because there's something about the way that each of us imparts ourselves into our food. Now I really want to bake cookies. So where people can find you or follow your work, you mentioned a newsletter and maybe tell us when the book's coming out and all that good stuff. Yeah. So people can find me in a few different places. On social media, I'm either at Root Kitchens or at Bookish Julia. My newsletter is rootkitchens.substack.com. And then all of my classes, I have like a fermentation oracle deck and all this other crazy stuff that I have on my website. And that is root-kitchens.com. And people can learn about me there. The book will be coming out in September, but you can pre-order it now. And if people go on my social media or my website or whatever, it's linked on there. So um, people can go on and order it through them or through their favorite bookseller. Awesome. Is there anything else that you want people to understand about the work that you do? You know, as, as my work has evolved, I've really started to think of fermentation of like understanding the stories behind our food is like, the magic of everyday life. And Mm. I think that's a good way to think about, you know, when we're cooking or something, you know, we're participating in this magic. We all have access to it. It's the kind of thing that maybe isn't going to get written down in a history book or something, but it's just as important as any of the major events that might be. So it's, you know, it is very magical, but also very accessible to all of us. So well said. (laughs) Thank you. I'm going to be thinking about your, what's it called? So, oh, so in, so in the Celtic porridge one. Yeah, the Celtic porridge. It's S O W A N S. Yeah, it's in the book. Very cool. So, thank you so much for coming on today, Julia. This was so lovely. And I can't wait to read your book and make some cookies with my Sanmat. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on the good dirt. Goodbye.